Good morning. I invite you to turn again to Mark chapter 13. Last week, the sermon was an extensive introduction to Mark chapter 13, and if you didn't have an opportunity to hear that, I encourage you to do so because it's really foundational to today's sermon. And I readily admit that last week's sermon and this week's sermon are densely packed, intellectually heavy. I, I just just ask you to do your best to, to bear with me. One of the, 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 the benefits of walking through this long passage today is to kind of see how it all fits together. So even though it's going to be like some heavy lifting, um, I think it'll be worthwhile to have the whole picture in view at the same time. Instead of reading all the verses beforehand, I'm going to kind of go through section by section and we'll read the corresponding verses as we're moving along. So let's, let me go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And this world is full of words that are futile and empty and expiring. And we thank you that we have a sure and certain word from our Lord Jesus Christ that we can stand on and live in. And Father, I pray that you would teach us today by the Holy Spirit and uh, strengthen us to live faithfully for you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So let's begin. The, the, the first section covering verses 1 and 2 may be titled, Jesus Foretells the Destruction of the Temple. Scripture says, And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. At least one disciple was really impressed by the magnificent temple that Herod the Great had rebuilt, enlarged, and beautified. It featured massive stones, resplendent white marble and gold. Human beings, we are very impressed by what our eyes can see, but Jesus saw what it would become, a pile of rubble. The second section, covering verses 3 and 4, may be titled, Four Disciples Ask Jesus for Additional Information. Scripture says, And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? The disciples are basically asking two questions. When will the temple be destroyed, and what is the sign that it is about to be destroyed? And remember, in verses 28 and 29, Jesus said that just as leaves 
on a fig tree signal that summer is near, so some momentous events that Jesus is about to tell us about would signal that the temple is about to be destroyed, and at the very same time that Jesus himself will be vindicated. And then Jesus says in verse 30 that all these things, stretching from verse 5 to 27, will take place before the current generation passes away. So all the events described in verses 5 to 27 took place in the middle decades of the first century and in the years leading up to 70 A.D. The third section, covering verses 5 to 13, may be titled, The Gospel Will Advance in a Troubled and Resistant World. Scripture says, And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness about them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit." And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Remember, the, the, the end referred to in verse 7 is not the end of the world, but the end of the temple, the end of the city, the end of the Jewish leadership. Regarding the disciples' question in verse 4, the, circumstance, the circumstances described in verses 5 to 13 are not the sign that the temple is about to be destroyed. Instead, these are preliminary events that must take place over the course of many years. So I want to try to keep this section really simple. If you know that something really big and devastating is about to happen, as in the destruction of the temple that represents your nation's rich spiritual heritage and the destruction of the capital city and the destruction of the nation's religious leadership and the dismantling of the nation's religious system, then you are apt to be on edge. You would be tempted to be preoccupied with the when and the what. Every bit of bad news, social unrest, political instability, international conflict, earthquakes, famines, is likely to get you worked up into thinking that societal collapse is imminent, and that can be paralyzing. And as the, as the pressures mount and tensions rise, charismatic personalities and false saviors step onto the scene and peddle their fantastic ideas to a vulnerable group of people, okay? And what Jesus tells his followers is, keep your head. 
and stay focused. See that no one leads you astray. Verse 5, and when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. The deception of verse 6 and the depressing news of verse 7 must take place, but these things don't need to drag you down. Don't be frightened or alarmed. Be single-minded and do your job. And what is their job? To proclaim the gospel. Verse 10, Don't get caught up in the bad news. Stay focused on preaching the good news. And in order for them to do this, they must remain vigilant and disciplined, always trusting God. The Jewish religious authorities and the secular political authorities are going to arrest and interrogate them. You can read about that in the book of Acts. As you stand trial before these opponents, don't be anxious about what you're going to say. The Holy Spirit will put the right words into your mouth at the needed time. You're not just going to be opposed by the cultural authorities, but by everyone. Internal family division will affect you, verse 12. Everyone will hate you because of your association with Jesus, verse 13. Therefore, stand firm. Hold on to Jesus. Believe His promises. Keep taking steps of obedience. If you turn back because you can't handle the pressure, you will show yourself to be a false disciple. A true disciple must deny himself and take up his cross and follow Jesus. No turning back, but faithful all the way to the finish line. The one who endures to the end will be saved. Verse 13. As Jesus' disciples were faithful to their calling, they were assured of progress. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And that's just what happened. I mean, ju just two months after Jesus spoke these words, in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit came upon that small band of 120 disciples, do you know who was in Jerusalem? Jews from every nation under heaven. And they heard the gospel. Some of them were converted. Now, that, that by itself doesn't fulfill verse 10 because what's in view there is not just Jews, but also Gentiles, all peoples coming to hear the gospel. But what do you think would have happened over the course of three decades as some of those Jews would have, would have traveled back to their, to, to their host country or there would have, they would have received visitors from other places and the gospel would have been traveling the world? The book of Acts itself testifies to how the gospel started in Jerusalem and then went to Judea and Samaria and then throughout the Roman Empire, and it ends with Paul preaching the gospel in Rome. In Paul's letter to the Colossians in the middle of the first century, Paul wrote in verse 6, Colossians 1-6, in the whole world the gospel is bearing fruit and increasing. So yes, yes, the temple is going to be destroyed, but don't be preoccupied with that. Trouble and opposition notwithstanding, you're going to have three plus decades to preach the gospel far and wide. Get to it and stay faithful. Section four, the fourth section covering verses 14 to 23 may be titled, Signs that the temple's destruction is about to take place. Scripture says, But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. 
and alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that it may not happen in winter, for in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on your guard. I have told you all things beforehand. With respect to the 40-year period running from 30 A.D. to 70 A.D., the beginning of the birth pains, verse 8, okay, covering verses 5 to 13, that, 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 that lasted probably about 35 years. But Jesus shifts gears in verse 14 and turns his attention when th- to when things are going to get really bad. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, the background to this concept of the abomination of of desolation or the abomination that makes desolate is found in the Old Testament book of Daniel. Daniel 8.13, Daniel 9.27, Daniel 11.31, Daniel 12.11 all refer to this concept of the abomination of desolation. And the idea is that the temple, instead of, instead of being true to its holy purpose, gets defiled. The temple becomes a place of abomination. In Mark chapter 11... Jesus said that the temple was supposed to be a place of prayer for all nations, but it had become a den of robbers. A den of robbery is bad enough, but rarely is a circumstance so bad that it can't be made worse. Now, there may be multiple abominations of desolation that were to take place at least two different times in history, or maybe more than two. The action of the Greek king Antiochus in 167 B.C. is widely regarded to be one instance of an abomination of desolation. One commentator writes, quote, Antiochus's emissaries desecrated the temple by setting up a pagan altar, and they also designated it the temple of Zeus Olympius and installed a statue of its new god. And that inspired a Jewish revolt under the Maccabees. And in due course, the Jews reclaimed their independence for a time. And so the abomination of desolation under Antiochus in the second century B.C. is part of the background to Mark chapter 13, verse 14. But Jesus foresaw another abomination of desolation that would take place in the middle of the first century. And although we can't necessarily pinpoint one specific action or event that constitutes the abomination in the first century, we, 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 we know that it would be connected to an extreme corruption of worship in the temple. The temple is profaned. The altar is violated. Perhaps a man or an idol or a symbol is set up in the place of God, and thus the temple becomes ground zero for high-handed rebellion against God. We can only speculate as to the precise event, but Jesus expected his disciples to be able to recognize it. When you see, he said in verse 14, when you see that the temple has gone beyond the point of no return, 
It's time to get far away. The abomination desecrates the temple and sets in motion a chain of events characterized by unparalleled tribulation that will lead to the destruction of the temple and the city. Now, a little history is going to be really helpful here. The Judean political district had existed under the rule of the Roman Empire since the year 37 B.C. We read about Roman political figures in the New Testament. Caesar Augustus, Herod the Great, other rulers also with the name Herod, Pontius Pilate. We also, uh, we also learn about Roman soldiers and the imperial tax. And there were, there were no doubt up and ups and downs with this arrangement. Some Jews wanted to play nice with the Romans and keep things peaceful. And other Jews wanted to stage a revolution. In fact, the Jewish messianic hope is that the Messiah would come and deliver Israel from the power of Rome. But the Messiah actually came to deliver his people from the power of sin, which is much less appealing to people who love their sin. Now, things came to a boiling point in the year 66 AD. Okay? Uh, I'm going to give you a few quotes from historian Cy Shepard, wrote a wonderful little book. If you want to study this further, I'll recommend this book to you. Um, it's really helpful. But he writes that the Judean province was fractured along ethnic, class, and religious lines. Would-be prophets, mystics, and messiahs constantly sought to capitalize on the popular desire for some form of millenarian release. That's just a millenarian. refers to the millennium hope, the hope for a golden age. They wanted not just independence, but social justice and the restoration of a faith of a simpler time. This mounting frustration was reflected in the increasingly violent actions of extremist sects. The spark that ignited this highly combustible tangle of class, ethnic, and religious divisions was rioting that broke out in Caesarea when a Greek mob profaned the synagogue in May of AD 66. Welcome to life in the late 60s in Palestine. It was as if the dam was about to break. Gessius Florus, the Roman procurator, he went after overdue taxes from the Jews. Some Jews responded by mocking Florus. Florus demanded that the Jewish leaders hand over the mockers. The Jewish leaders refused. Florus sent troops to plunder and massacre a part of the city of Jerusalem. Many Jews were crucified. The Jewish revolutionaries battled against the Roman troops and brought the temple under their control. The temple itself became a center of political revolutionary activity and violence. There was infighting among the Jews, conflict between the Jews and the Romans, and violence spread throughout the region. It's really, it really, it's just ramping up. Now, an empire like Rome does not like civil unrest, and they don't like to be offended, and they don't like to be attacked. They don't like revolt. In the spring of 67 AD, the Roman general Vespasian, who later became emperor, went to war against the Jews. And, and Galilee was first in his sights. Galilee, which 40 years earlier had been graced by the feet of the one who brought good news, was now in the crosshairs of the Roman army. Jaffa fell. Jadapata fell, Joppa fell, Tiberius and Terakekea fell. 
Gamala fell, Mount Tabor fell, Giscala, Jamnia, and Azotus fell. That was in A.D. 67. Town after town going down. Around this time, one possible candidate for the abomination of desolation is described by Ben Witherington. He writes, Josephus tells us how the zealots took over from November 67 or the spring of 68, at which time they allowed criminals to roam the temple, including in the Holy of Holies, and even to murder others in the temple. As a sort of sick joke, a man named Fani was invested as high priest. Talk about a temple that had lost its purpose. The war continued in the spring of 68 AD. The Roman army turned its attention south in the greater Judea area. Gadara, Bethanabris, Emmaus, Jericho, and Qumran fell. It is as if the Jewish conquest of Canaan in the days of Joshua was being undone. That's how judgment works. There was a lot of infighting within the Roman Empire, and there was a lot of infighting among the Jews, but the war continued. Hebron, the place where David had ruled as king in the early years of his kingship, fell in the middle of 69 AD. By the end of the year, Vespasian had become the emperor of the Roman Empire. And then in the spring of 70 AD, Vespasian's son Titus led the Roman troops against Jerusalem. The siege of Jerusalem began in April and lasted several months. Now, there were many more people in Jerusalem at the time of the siege than who actually lived there. There were, there were uh, a number of folks there celebrating Passover because the siege of Jerusalem began right around the time that Passover was to be celebrated. So a lot of pilgrims ended up stuck in the city. And Cy Shepherd also notes this very interesting detail. He said, in addition, there were all those who had come in from the surrounding countryside in order to take refuge. And I wanted to quote that because I want you to think about that in relationship to what Jesus said. Those who knew and trusted the words of the Lord Jesus knew better than to take refuge in Jerusalem. The city and the temple had no future as far as God's kingdom was concerned, and they would not be a suitable refuge. Only Jesus is a suitable refuge. Only Jesus is the true temple. Only Jesus is the true Passover lamb. Trust Jesus and get out of the city. It's under judgment. Jesus advises people to flee, doesn't he? When you see the temple desecrated, then it is high time to flee to the mountains, verse 14. Don't procrastinate in order to pack a suitcase or gather extra belongings. The tribulation of this time period is incomparable in its intensity. Verse 19 says, For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. The point is not to compare this tribulation period in the late 60s with other horrific periods in human history. That's not the point. The point is, is that it is one of those horrific periods that is incomparable and horribly, exceedingly awful. The destruction of town after town, the large numbers of dead and prisoners of war, the five-month siege and ruin of Jerusalem, and the undoing of an entire culture was an unparalleled experience. 
Of course, such terrible times provide a ripe opportunity for false messiahs and false saviors to give people a false hope, verses 21 and 22. Those who belong to Jesus must remain steadfast in him and hold on to his words and not be duped by false saviors, however impressive their claims and actions may be. Mercifully, those days of tribulation would not last forever, verse 23. They wouldn't last as long as they might have lasted if men were in charge. Those days were cut short. Why did the Lord God cut short those days? Not for the sake of Jerusalem. It would be destroyed. Not for the sake of the temple. It would be destroyed. Not for the sake of people in general and not for the sake of Jews in particular. Vast numbers will die. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose. He shortened the days, verse 20. The elect are the people that God has chosen to bring into fellowship with his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God holds his chosen ones in his fatherly hand and shepherds them through trial and tribulation. He guards them from deception, verse 22. And he shortened the days of tribulation for their sake, verse 20. If ever there was a time for the disciples to pay close attention to their own spiritual health, it was this time. But be on your guard. I have told you all these things beforehand. Verse 23. The fifth section, the final section we're going to look at today, covers verses 24 to 27 and may be titled Judgment, Vindication, and Mission. Scripture says, But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Verse 24 shows that the events of verses 24 to 27 take place on the heels of the events of verses 14 to 23. Verse 19 refers to in those Days, and it is referring to the tribulation that characterized those days. Now, verse 24 begins, but in those days after that tribulation. So, those days began with the abomination of desolation, verse 14. And then those days, all too long but shortened nonetheless, unfolded into untold tribulation and suffering, through verse 23. And now those days reach their appointed end. Verses 24 to 27. That's the, that's the flow of thought of the passage. Remember, those days of incomparable tribulation were cut short. How were they cut short? What happens to bring an awful mess to completion? Well, what happens is that the war comes to an end. The cup of judgment is poured out and emptied. There's nothing left to be poured out. The destruction is complete. Judgment overtakes the people who were under judgment, but the people who were not under judgment enter into the light of a new day. So after this season of unparalleled tribulation, finally the cosmic lights go out. The sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Language about the cosmic lights going out is drawn from the Old Testament and indicates that something big is happening. And it typically means that God is bringing judgment against a disobedient people. 
For example, in Isaiah chapter 13, the prophet brings an oracle concerning Babylon, which describes judgment against the Babylonian kingdom, which took place in the 6th century B.C. This act of judgment against Babylon is referred to as the day of the Lord. And this is what it says in verses 9 through 13. Isaiah 13, 9 through 13. Listen carefully. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. When you read that, one is tempted to think that the whole universe is collapsing. But the oracle is describing and pinpointing judgment against Babylon, which, which happened in 539 B.C. Isaiah 13, verse 17 says, Behold, I am stirring up the Medes against them, and Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans, will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. Similar language is used in Ezekiel 32 to describe judgment against Egypt. And similar language is used in Joel chapter 2 and Amos chapter 8 to describe the day of the Lord coming against the inhabitants of Zion. So this language about the cosmic lights going out and the heavens trembling doesn't mean that the universe is collapsing and the world is ending. What it means is that God is doing something big, something seismic, earth-shattering of great consequences happening. And in the, in the context of Mark 13, it refers to judgment against Jerusalem and against the temple. It is another day of the Lord in which God comes to enact judgment against the disobedient people, in this case the Jewish people who had rejected their Messiah. In terms of the parable of the tenant farmers in Mark chapter 12, do you remember? The vineyard owner comes and destroys the tenants. Similarly, in the parable of the wedding feast in Matthew chapter 22, here is how the king responded to the people who refused to honor his son and who killed some of the king's servants. It says, the king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. It's a parable, but that's how it went down. That is how God responded to Israel's rejection of his beloved son. Jesus had foreseen the destruction of Jerusalem under the thumb of the Roman armies. In Luke chapter 19, Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem. He said, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. That barricade probably refers to the, what's called a wall of circumvallation that the Roman army built around Jerusalem in the summer early summer of 70 A.D. 
essentially trapping everyone inside the city. No way of escape. And then in Luke chapter 21, Luke 21 is a, is a passage that runs parallel to Mark 13. They're talking about the same things, okay? In Luke 21, Jesus said, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. There will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So as a direct consequence of Israel's rejection of their Messiah, God saw to it that Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed. The siege of Jerusalem had begun in April and lasted deep into the summer. The temple was destroyed in August of 70 A.D. Herod's palace fell in September. The land, the leading city, and the prized temple had been ruined, and the population had been decimated. Tens of thousands of prisoners of war and hundreds of thousands dead, which is saying a lot because Israel's a tiny country. They were decimated. Cy Shepard writes this, quote, The siege had been the hardest fought and most comprehensive manifestation of classical era total war since the fall of Carthage over two centuries earlier. Even by Roman standards, the human toll was appalling. The victors kept 700 of the tallest and best-looking young men for Titus's triumph at Rome. Of the remaining males, those over 17 were sent in chains to a living death as forced labor in Egypt or to arenas all over the Roman Empire where they would die in gladiatorial combats or be fed to wild animals. Women and children were packed off to the slave markets. As a consequence of having rejected the Prince of Peace. The enactment of God's judgment always means darkness and gloom for anyone who is not trusting in the Lord. But when we speak about God's earth-shattering judgments in verses 24 and 25 and in other biblical passages, we have to remember that God's judgment against against a disobedient people always has another side to it. There's a recurring pattern in Scripture. God judges the disobedient but vindicates His chosen ones. He judges the ungodly, but saves those who belong to Him. He pours out wrath on the wicked, but protects those who take refuge in Him. He desolates the rebellious house, but He honors and builds up His faithful ones. That's the pattern. Two sides of the same coin. And we see this pattern in Mark 11. Jesus spoke judgment against the temple because it was not a place of prayer. It had become a den of robbers. And then a few verses later, Jesus identifies his own community of disciples as the true house of prayer. And in Mark chapter 12, you see the same pattern. The vineyard owner will come and destroy the tenants and do what? He will give his vineyard to others. God's judgment involves judgment against one group, the unfaithful, and judgment in favor of another group, the faithful ones. Now, in Mark 13, the judgment upon Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple is one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is that the beloved son is vindicated and honored, and God's chosen ones who belong to the son are gathered in from the far reaches of the world. And this brings us to verse 26. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. 
As I said last week, I do not think that this verse refers to Jesus' second coming at the end of history. Instead, I think that this verse refers to Jesus' exaltation and vindication in the first century. One of the barriers to understanding verse 26 is the automatic assumption that coming means coming to earth. But why assume this? The concept of the Son of Man coming in clouds takes us back to the book of Daniel, chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7 tells us about a succession of five kingdoms, each successive kingdom following on the heels of the one before it. The first lion-like kingdom is Babylon. The second bear-like kingdom is Media Persia. The third leopard-like kingdom is Greece. And the fourth iron-like kingdom is Rome. These four kingdoms held sway one after another from the 600s B.C. down to the first century A.D. Then a fifth kingdom... An everlasting kingdom emerged. Daniel 7, verses 9 through 14, shows us a heavenly court scene in which the Ancient of Days, God the Father, is seated on His throne, surrounded by innumerable heavenly attendants, and He renders judgment against the four kingdoms. And then the Ancient of Days gives universal dominion and sovereignty to a very special person. Daniel 7, 13 and 14 says... I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." Behold, the Son of Man coming in clouds. But coming to where? Coming to whom? Coming to the Ancient of Days, the beloved Son comes to the Father and receives an everlasting kingdom that makes a rightful claim on all peoples, nations, and languages. Now, someone will ask, all right, I'm tracking with you, maybe, but verse 26 says, and they will see, they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds. Doesn't it mean that His coming is visible? Now, that's a good question, but consider this. In the next chapter, Mark chapter 14, Jesus is being interrogated by the high priest in the presence of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leadership council. People are giving garbled testimony against Jesus, and Jesus remains quiet. And then in Mark chapter 14, verse 60, says, And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. In Matthew's account of this conversation, Jesus' remark is even more pointed. Jesus said, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Here's the basic point. Jesus is in the process of being dishonored, rejected, and killed by Israel's religious leaders. But Jesus knows that he, the stone that the builders rejected, is actually the beloved Son who is the cornerstone of salvation. And so Jesus says to the high priest, in essence, although you and your... your you and your cohorts see me as worthy of death. God will render judgment in my favor. And going forward, you will see me exalted, vindicated, and entrusted with universal sovereignty over the nations. And frankly, 
Sooner or later, everyone, everyone will see and understand and have to reckon with the sovereign authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. But right here, taking Mark 13.26 in conjunction with Mark 14.62 and Matthew 26.74, I don't think that the see, the seeing of verse 26 requires that Jesus be, physic- be visibly seen with physical eyes in that moment. I don't think that's the point. I think R.T. France is on the right track when he says what they will see is his heavenly authority. They will see the reality. They will see the demonstration of his exaltation and vindication and honor in the presence of God. Think, think about what was happening. The Father had raised Jesus from the dead and had exalted him to the place of highest honor and given him the name that is above every name and entrusted to him all authority in heaven and on earth. And then what happened in A.D. 70 was a clear vindication of Jesus and the words of Jesus. He is Israel's true Messiah. In rejecting Him, the Jews brought judgment on themselves. He rightly foretold the destruction of Jerusalem, right? He said the temple will pass away. In verse 31, He said heaven and earth will pass away, but My words will not pass away. You can take them to the bank. He prophesied truly. Trust Him. Believe Him. He is the true temple and the true sacrifice who brings believing Jews and believing Gentiles into fellowship with the Father. So, the city of Jerusalem is destroyed, but the heavenly Mount Zion stands forth with Jesus at the helm. The temple is toppled, and the lifeless stones are a pile of rubble, and the sacrificial system under the old covenant is buried with it. But believers in Jesus from all over the world are like living stones being built up as God's house, the true temple and dwelt by the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the true King who has received sovereignty over all nations from the Father. The old covenant Jewish age is decisively over and done, and the new covenant global reality is here to stay forever. Now, we're almost done. We're almost done. Hopefully you've done well. In light of the exaltation of Jesus in verse 26, what follows? Well, what is intended to follow the exaltation of the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7? The Ancient of Days gave the Son of Man dominion and glory and a kingdom. That purpose, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. So what follows? the universal kingship of the Son of Man, the sovereign authority of the Lord Jesus Christ is proclaimed far and wide to the ends of the earth so that all peoples, nations, and languages might come to know Him, love Him, and worship Him. That brings us to verse 27. And then He, the Son of Man, will send out the angels and gather His elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Whether the angels refers to angelic messengers or human messengers, the underlying word can carry both meanings. What is in view here is the global missionary enterprise that will endure until the end of history. It began to happen in the first century, and it will continue to happen until the Lord returns. God's global family will be called out and gathered together and built up as the true messianic community. Of course, Mark 13, 10 
had taught us that a preliminary proclamation of the gospel to all nations actually happened in the middle decades of the first century. But now we see that global mission and ingathering authorized again by the exalted Son of Man will characterize the remainder of human history until all of God's chosen ones among both Jews and Gentiles are gathered together into God's forever family. Are you, are you one of His chosen ones who has been gathered into the family of God? Let me close with this. Around the year 30 A.D., the Romans, at the insistence of the Jewish leaders, crucified the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was made desolate, forsaken by God, because He was bearing the sins of His people. Forty years later, as a result of Israel's rejection of the Messiah, it is as if the Roman army crucified the entire nation. Israel was made desolate, forsaken by God, because they were bearing their own sins. Let the one with ears to hear understand. The people and their, and their temple were torn down with no one to rescue but the true temple, the true sacrifice, God's Lamb, three days after His death, had risen from the dead and shortly thereafter ascended into heaven and sat down at God's right hand. He alone has the grace and power to redeem any sinner who would turn to Him in faith. And that is the question that you face. Will you trust Jesus as the gracious sin-bearer who died on your behalf to bring you peace? Or will you hold on to your sins and face God's wrath alone with no one to help? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be delivered. But if you refuse, you will be desolate. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would feast and be nourished by the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm sure we don't understand everything in this passage. I'm sure that questions remain, and that's okay. I pray that you would take the, the, the truth and the power and the glory and the weightiness and the lessons of this passage and drive them deep into our hearts and our minds, and I pray that we would hold fast to the words of the Lord Jesus Christ and remember that our King is exalted at the right hand of God. And He's able to save to the uttermost everyone who comes to God through Him. Have mercy on us, Father, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.